Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to High Energy Health. I am your host, Dawson Church, and each week on the show, as you know, I am overflowing with enthusiasm as I share with you all these remarkable findings we have right now about the link between all the different aspects of our being. We used to, of course, think we were a body and we were a mind and we were a spiritual being on a physical path and we had all these different components to our, our personalities. And we're now discovering all of these remarkable ways in which they're linked. There was a study published recently showing that people have different levels of beta amyloid plaques, elderly people in their brains, and the researchers are using a non-invasive way of scanning. And now we have these ways of using scanners to determine those levels of plaque. And in this particular study, the researchers looked at all the different correlations between plaque buildup of those beta amyloid plaques in the brain. And they looked at all the different risk factors for that. And they compared it to all those risk factors with the actual buildup of beta amyloid plaques in the brain over a period of several years. And they sifted through all the evidence and looked at all the different possible factors that were influencing that, that physiological result. And what they found was there was one that stood out as having the strongest correlation of all between that factor and the accumulation of beta amyloid plaques in the brain, a signature of Alzheimer's disease, that one thing was negative thinking. Negative thinking correlated more strongly than every other factor. Not only that, it scaled. Those with the greatest amount of negative thinking had the greatest amount of beta amyloid plaques. So it's really remarkable now showing that we, as we think, as we feel, as we have emotions, as our moods go up and down, all of these things are having dramatic effects on our bodies. And it's wonderful to realize that the corollary there is that we have a choice and we have power over our wellness. And I think you'll be very inspired by the very wise words of my guest today. His name is Dr. Dilip Jest. He is a neuropsychiatrist, and if I were to try to read out to you even a half of his qualifications, there'd be no time to actually interview him. <laughs> so in the interest of brevity, I'll just say that his newest book is called Wiser. He is a neuropsychiatrist who spent more than 20 years studying the aspects of the wisdom, how wisdom and aging link together. His professor of psychiatry and neuroscience at the University of California, San Diego, and also past president of the American Psychiatric Association. Dr. Jest, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Dawson. It is my pleasure to be on your show. I'm delighted. Well, my guess, you probably began as a fairly conventional doctor and then began to realize the impact and the interrelationship of all these other aspects of our beings over time. Am I right in guessing that? Yes. I was interested in understanding brain and mind. So when I was growing up, I read Freud's book on interpretation of dreams. And I was amazed how he could take a dream or a slip of tongue and interpret the person's behavior and then trace it to the brain. I thought that was so fascinating. And that's where I decided that I wanted to go into psychiatry. I wanted to study brain and mind. And I was interested in research. So I grew up in India. And I wanted to do research, but I realized that there is a limit to how much research could be done in India. So I decided to move to the mecca of research, which is U.S. and within the U.S., of course, the National Institutes of Health. So I came here, had my research training at NIH, and then moved to San Diego. But my focus has been really how to understand brain and mind, and especially as it relates to aging. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. And when I decided to go into aging, people said, why are you doing that? It'll be so depressing because aging is all gloom and doom. 
<laughs> Too funny. Yeah, and I found that that was very wrong. I found that as people got older, they became happier, more contented, and more productive. And that was, so the question was, is that wisdom? And so that brought me to research into wisdom. So I decided to understand wisdom and whether it was related to aging. And then how do you define or conceptualize wisdom? So wisdom is a personality trait. And personality traits are characteristic patterns of behavior. For example, somebody is introverted or extroverted uh, or resilient. So those are personality traits. Wisdom is also a trait like that, but it has several components. The most important component is empathy and compassion, things that we do for others rather than selfishly for ourselves. Second is emotional regulation, control over, over our emotions. Third is self-reflection, ability to look inwards, try to understand ourselves and see how we can get better. Another is sort of balance between accepting diversity of perspectives and yet being decisive when needed. And finally, spirituality. And by spirituality, I don't mean religiosity, but spirituality means being constantly connected with someone or something, whether we call that entity, consciousness, soul, or God, doesn't matter. But it is that constant connectedness that makes one happy even when they are alone. You know, what I've been so aware of, Dr. Jest, is the gulf that's opened up in people I talk to in my communities over the last year or two with all the challenges people have faced. And I talk to those who are inhabiting their wisdom in that way, who are meditating, who are self-reliant, who have a sense of power to their being beyond the passing show. And they, they have this sense of, of selfhood and solidity that is independent of all the things going on out there. And then there are other people who are so affected by the crises in the outside world. And, and they're often just miserable, they're triggered, they're stressed. And it's so startling to talk to these two groups of people. And, and the one is just, you know, well, we know this is going on in the outside world and we have a strong core of, I love those qualities, emotional regulation, compassion, self-reflection, connection with something greater than yourself. I mean, if you have those things, then you have something beyond possessions, beyond the events in the world around you, your own personal ups and downs in your life. And so I've been so struck by the, those who have all those qualities of wisdom that you describe, and just the, the, the suffering of people who haven't established that strong core yet. You're exactly right. One of the unique features of wisdom is that it is consistently associated with greater satisfaction with life, more happiness, more contentedness, better health, and also better appreciation by other people. Wisdom is different from intelligence. IQ and wisdom are not same. There are some people who are very smart, but they are not necessarily wise. For example, even people like terrorists or mass murderers, they have high IQ. What they lack is not IQ, what they lack is wisdom. What they lack is empathy, compassion. So they try to hurt other people instead of helping them. And that's what makes them unwise. And that's why we have to distinguish between intelligence and wisdom. Yes, yeah. And then the I, I'm just so uh, struck by your focus on aging because as, as we are now discovering that those who have good emotional regulation, those that have compassion, dramatically different trajectory of aging. I'm so struck, there's one case history in one of my books about this that monk called Minja Rinpoche and his brain age in terms of the, the thinning of his cortical tissue, his 10 years chronologically Biologically, is 10 years younger than his chronological age in terms of his brain age. It's remarkable when you practice this wisdom, what effects it has, the body, and the very, very different future you have aging when you are in that state. You know, that's exactly right. So wisdom being associated with greater feeling of happiness, well-being, also means there is less stress. 
And so it has biological effect. That's why the brains of older, wiser people would be better than those of unwise people of the same age because there is more neuroplasticity that occurs with aging in people who are wise and active. If you keep physically active, if you keep cognitively active and socially active, and if you're helping others, other people will help you. And that helps the brain continue to be plastic in older age. And again, studies have shown that this kind of physical, cognitive, and social activity results in better brains. There are more synapses, perhaps more neurons in sub subcortical regions, uh, and overall better functioning of the prefrontal cortex, as well as the uh, limbic striatum, which are involved in wisdom. Yeah, all of those pro-social networks in the brain and how they, if they're active, they, they produce all of these other, other downstream results in, in people. And I mean, I also am just blown away by brain research that I read over the last 5, 10, 15 years with high resolution MRIs and studying the brains of people who are aging in this way and were making these choices. And then just the kinds of, of I mean, the scale and scope of the, the changes that this produces in their brains. And then we actually use our consciousness. I mean, the, you know, things like emotional regulation, compassion, these are consciousness. And our consciousness, our thoughts, our software is literally building the hardware of our brains. This is not new news in neuroscience, it's not new neuroscience, but it's astonishing news. This is absolutely astonishing, I agree. I mean, when I went to medical school, I was taught that the only thing that happens to brain with aging is that it shrinks. Today, I know that that's not necessarily the case, that in people who keep themselves active, including social activity, helping others, their brains continue to grow. Neurons, synapses, blood vessels, the overall activity. And this is really a big lesson. And this kind of plasticity, you don't have to be too young or too old. It can start, you can start any age. You're never too young or too old to start behavior that will be helpful for your own brain growth. Maybe you can give us an example of a patient of yours and link this to a story of somebody who saw dramatic change as they began to develop those qualities of wisdom. Sure. So I study schizophrenia. And usually schizophrenia is thought to be a disease with progressively worse outcome. It used to be called dementia precox, that it was dementia that occurred earlier in life. But what we found was that number of people with schizophrenia, as they got older, they started doing better. They seem to have learned from their experience. So I can give example of a patient who had a lot of hospitalizations, uh, did not respond well to treatment, uh, received uh, ECT drugs and other therapies. But slowly but surely, he started getting better in middle age and later life. His smoking went down, alcohol and substance use went down. He became much more overall adherent to treatment. He started doing more physical activity. Actually, one example I want to give is what many people will know. There's a movie called Beautiful Mind. It's a true story of a Nobel laureate, John Nash who was diagnosed with schizophrenia in his early 20s. He was at Princeton at that time. But for 30 years, he was in and out of hospital, received electric shock, insulin coma. He was in restraints, drugs, you name it, he had it. Around 50, he started doing better. At 60, he stopped all treatment. He went back to research. He wrote a paper for the first time after 30 years. And subsequently, he was invited to the American Psychiatric Association as a guest speaker. So imagine a person with very chronic schizophrenia who had this electric shock treatment and all other treatment was doing so well in his 60s, 70s, and even 80s. So what is the other side of the coin? What about the people who don't gain wisdom? And you know, we're all probably... I'll, I'll just give you an example that, that really, really broke my heart from this last week. So I've just been on a long meditation retreat. And one night, I normally eat really, really clean food and, you know, uh, practice moderation. But one night I decided to splurge and I bought a giant pizza. <laughs> <laughs> 
Normally I wouldn't be eating a pizza, but by that night I decided to eat a, to eat a pizza. And I, uh, I had a slice, really enjoyed it, ate it mindfully. And then I thought, well, I got a whole huge pizza. What do I do with this thing? So I realized there was a, there a group of homeless people near the retreat center. And so I drove down there and this guy in a wheelchair is a, is a uh, is Iraq, Iraq war veteran. I just I shared the pizza with them. And, but I, as I was with this group of homeless people, I was so aware that their vision of what's possible is so limited. And so as they age, you know, obviously they're, they're having a lot of medical issues. Their world is shrinking. They're not doing what, they're not on the same path John, John Nash was. And, you know, I, it just breaks my heart because I, I, wish, I wish everyone knew what you're, what you're advocating here, that it's possible to have that kind of, a, of, a, of, of an improvement as we age. Because for most people, they're just convinced that their world will shrink it up. For many people, they, it, it just does. Those neuroplastic connections, if they just keep on using the old ones of, of stress and anger and negative emotion, those are the ones they strengthen. So that's the other side of the coin that's so tragic. Your point is very well taken. There's no question about that. That Unfortunately, that happens to a variety of people with mental illnesses, for example. But the reason why John Nash did so well was not merely because he was a genius. It was because he had a lot of social support. He got the best treatment he could. He was married, and it was a very wonderful relationship. And his colleagues at Princeton were very helpful to him. So even when he had illness, they were very supportive. So that kind of help, social support, unfortunately, is not there for most people with mental illnesses. It is not there for many older people in the general population. So my feeling is that the problem they are getting worse with older age is not biology. It is the fact that the society is not helping them enough. So they don't have that social support that the people who are thriving do. Let me ask you another question that I, I, I don't know the answer to. And... It, it intrigues me and I, uh, it's coming more prevalent now because in the last few years, we've seen as people have had diminished opportunities for actual physical interaction, that they've had more and more virtual interaction. And I've already been wondering about the role of, of virtual socialization and whether that can take the place or stand in for partially, fully, I don't know. There's very little research on this. Can that take the place? And just say for, say for example, a woman whose children and grandchildren live a long way away, but now they're using Zoom to connect with her. What is your, I don't know if there's any data on this, but um, what, what's your, your clinical intuition on that one? So my experience and intuition both, that real person interaction is clearly better than anything else. And especially for older people or people with mental illnesses, because sometimes they need physical touch. That's one thing they lack, and they are really craving for that. And, you know, when an older person sees the grandkids coming and you hug them, there's a very special feeling to that. Just seeing them, you can see each other's emotions and then you can laugh, cry together. That really has great relevance. And yet, when there is no choice, I mean, like the social isolation that is mandated because of the COVID, virtual interactions are the second best choice. But I'm glad, actually, that we are going beyond phones. At least we have Zoom. We have FaceTime. So we can see people. So that is better than not having those visual interactions. But it is not the same as in-person interaction. And you can't hug via Zoom. You're right. And then another uh, question I have in that, that same vein is spiritual interactions. People who have a sense of protection, who have a relationship with what they conceive of as a deity, or they feel one with nature or one with the universe. Like uh, my, my wife jokes that when she's alone in the car and she's going somewhere, she's just alone in the car. When I'm alone in the car, like I go up on these retreats every once in a while, she says, I'm, I'm just communing with all of these other, you know, like parts of my psyche and, and I'll tune into some, want to tune into a great scientist or I'll want to tune into a great spiritual figure and I'll just think about that person. Gene Houston talks about archetypes and how there are certain archetypal energies you know, the warrior, the poet, the, the, the merchant, the, 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 the seer, the sage, there are all these archetypal energies and they crop up in, uh, in mythology, they crop up in the world's religions and they're identifiable even from religion to religion. And so we all seem to have an idea of these great archetypes and some of us feel very, you know, very, very close to or embodying or, 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 or having a relationship 
with these archetypes. Napoleon Hill, who wrote the book Think and Grow Rich, said that you can't solve most problems at the level of ordinary consciousness. And he would, in fact, flip into extraordinary consciousness. And he would call in what he called his invisible council. And on his invisible council, he had all kinds of past figures like Marie Curie and Napoleon and George Washington. And he, he sort of had this invisible council meeting. And he'd say, okay, I'm now going to ask them these questions. And he would come back from these altered states with all this wisdom and all this sense of connection that he hadn't got at the level of local awareness. So I'm, I'm wondering about people who have that kind of, of experience where they, 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 they feel connected with, say, a guardian angel that they conceive of, uh, some part of their archetypal psyche, they, they feel, so again, now they're not having a human connection or even a Zoom connection. They're simply, maybe they're meditating and feeling, uh, like I have one, one woman who feels Mother Mary is there in the room with her. Another person, it's Kuan Yin, a Buddhist friend of mine, feels the energy of Kuan Yin. And, you know, again, I, I have no idea how to, how to measure this experimentally, but I wonder if these uh, are also serving in some way as social surrogates or giving people a sense of of support beyond the, the isolated kind of box that many elderly people are in who don't have that sense of another dimension of their lives. Right. I think that certainly, I also heard similar stories from a number of people. And so and my sense is actually, if it works for somebody, it is great. And it does work for some people. I think it's a way of connecting to something you don't see in person, but you wished you did. And if there is a way in which you can connect with that, I think uh, all the power to that. I don't see any downside to it. I mean, in a way, when we see a movie, for example, or when we read a book, we often identify with the character so much. We feel like that. Uh, and it is actually useful to identify with characters uh, or people who are inspirations to us. They make us feel good. I don't see why not. So that's definitely it's uh, something that could be used in therapy. But again, it won't work for everybody. Really. Like, you know, I, I once had a, had a uh, woman I, I was working with on stage and I thought, well, you know, I wonder if, if, if she believes in God and if, if so, if we can bring in God and at least get the placebo effect of her belief in there. And so I said, do you believe in God? She said, yes. I said, well, tell me about your experience. And she said, well, I was in Catholic school. What happened in Catholic school? The nuns beat me. So I realized that somebody for bringing in that was going to be a nocebo effect from a relief in God, not a placebo. I think, again, we, the neuroscience has not advanced enough right now to tell us more about it, but I think it will. I mean, I do believe that some of the concepts in spirituality have a neurobiological basis. Actually, even the NIH director, uh, Francis Collins, said that he believes that there is a, some center in the brain for religion and God. And so again, the neuroscience is advancing. So we know much more actually about how the emotions work, how compassion works in the brain. So I expect that in another decade or so, we will also know how spirituality works in the brain. Now you were mentioning the insula and the parts of the brain that are engaged during the process of feeling compassion or those pro-social emotions. I'd love for you to just give us a, a take a deeper dive into that, and also how that affects aging. Sure. So what we found was that looking at these different components of wisdom and their neurobiological association, and you can do those things by using functional magnetic resonance imaging. So for example, you have a person in a magnet, and inside the magnet, they can see a picture of a happy, smiling baby or a car accident where somebody's badly hurt. So you know that there are positive and negative emotions created by them. What the MRI is doing at the time is also looking at the brain blood flow or uptake of glucose. And from that, it can see which part of the brain is activated. And typically when it comes to compassion or other emotional recognition, the prefrontal cortex and the insula become prominent. And there is also a difference between the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Again, I don't want to go into too much technology. However, it's worth remembering that for a, from a very simplistic perspective, you could say the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is like a proverbial mother, kind, helpful, <laughs> passionate. I love it, wow. Whereas the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is like a proverbial father, strict, disciplinary, 
no wasting time on emotions. You have to do your things. And so what happens in real life, it's, we have to have a balance between the two. We have to be self-disciplined, but we also have to be compassionate. Too much of each, either could be bad. If I'm too compassionate, I give away everything, I won't have anything left for me. On the other hand, if I'm too secluded, too selfish, then again, I'm not no good. So it's a balance between the two that matters. And that's how actually you can see that on the brain, that for people who are say, antisocial, you won't see one part of the brain lighting up when they see that. On the other hand, very compassionate people, you'll see the other part of the brain lighting up and so on. Uh, again, brain is pretty complex and anything, you know, something like that. I don't want to make it sound very simplistic, but there's no question that different parts of the brain are biologically involved in all these features. Yes, and actually I, uh, in my book, This Brain, I make sure people know about those, those particular parts of the brain, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. I didn't want to hit them with too much information, but I felt those were two really important brain regions. It was important to understand what was going on with them. And then I think what you're all, what also thing you're also uh, moving toward here is self-development. And we may recognize, for example, that we don't have certain qualities and we, we can develop them in ourselves. Like I, I realized, you know, many years ago that I actually was not a very compassionate person. And I just decided that I needed to change that. And so I needed to develop my ventromedial prefrontal cortex. I needed to become that that wise person. I just decided to to just change myself, fix myself, educate myself, reshape myself. I had no idea at the time, Dr. Jess, that this was having any, any effect on my brain, but I knew just in terms of personal development, I needed to become more compassionate. So now of course we know now this is affecting the brain as well. But when you know when you when you take a little profile of, of how you work, that I think helps you move toward the wisdom that you advocate. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you really hit the nail on its head. In this, all of us have strengths and all of us have limitations. And we need to identify what those limitations are. And so one thing we have done in our research is develop a scale for measuring wisdom called San Diego Wisdom Scale. Uh, and it has 28 items and about four items for each of the components of wisdom, like empathy, compassion, self-reflection, emotional regulation, spirituality, etc. So one can take that scale and you can find out, again, no scale is perfect, but it gives you some idea about what are your strengths, what are your limitations, and then we can focus on how to improve. Um, wise person, I mean, Socrates said that anybody think, who thinks he's wise is a very unwise person. Because a wise person knows that what he or she doesn't know. And so just like you talked about that, I mean, you're clearly very wise in identifying something that needed improvement. By the way, I was also like you. I mean, I often compare my wife and I, and my wife is much more compassionate than I am. On the other hand, I am probably a bit more decisive. And she is because she accepts a diversity of perspectives. And so, so in a way, so we both realize sort of where we need to get better. And again, there is nothing to be ashamed of because all of us have strengths and limitations and we just get better. That's a really comforting lens to see this through is that you can measure these things. You discover you aren't so good at some of them and we do all have our strengths and weaknesses. And then you can simply resolve to get better at some components of wisdom. You can develop those parts of yourself. You don't have to stay, stay the way you are. And then as we're just amazing ourselves with yet again, is as you do those things psychologically, they're actually becoming your neurology. They're actually becoming your brain. What a, what a, what a thing. Thank you. I think that, that is something I found myself inspiring when I studied, I have been studying wisdom, that one can become wiser. So on the one hand, wise person will never say that he or she is wise because they can't be. But you can become wiser. Anybody can become wiser, irrespective of age, sex, whatever profession they are in, wherever they are, uh, however education you may have. Education does not necessarily reflect wisdom. Sometimes the wisest person in a family is a grandma who may not have uh, completed uh, more than high school education, even that much. And yet she is the wisest person because she has emotional regulation, compassion, self-reflection, and so on. And so the main message is that we all can get better if we try to do that. And we have to try. To and then 
how would you do that? So, so say you realize that you can accelerate this. And even if you're 12 years old or 15 years old, there are things you can do. But what are the practices you recommend? Even for somebody who's not that grandma, who's maybe in college or um, in their first job. And the, the, the quicker you become wise and wiser, the quicker you harvest the benefits of being wiser. And so this is something that you'd want to develop all, all your life, not just in old age, but at every age. Absolutely true. So the scientific answer and the practical answer. So the scientific answer is there are actually, we published a paper on something like 57 randomized controlled trials that sought to increase component of wisdom, like emotional regulation, empathy, compassion, or spirituality. And half of them found significant improvement with medium to large effect sizes. So it is possible to increase them just from scientific perspective. But what we are talking about is practical wisdom. What do we do in practice? And yes, there are strategies. The first part though, for anything is self-reflection, Accept, ad, accepting the fact, admitting the fact that you need improvement in something. We have to accept that fact if we are to, going to get better, right? And then we find solutions to that. For example, for compassion, say for people who may not have enough compassion. So there are various ways in which we can increase compassion. One is gratitude diary. Write a couple of things before you go to bed that made you feel grateful to somebody because they helped you even when they had no reason to help. So that's kind of random acts of kindness people did to you. Uh, so if you do that day in and day, you realize you get up in the morning and think about what am I going to write at the end of the day? So you think about that I will do something that will help others and then I can do that. So that's one. Second is role-playing or using props. For example, if I spend 24 hours in a wheelchair, I will exactly understand what a person in a wheelchair feels like. And then instead of feeling angry about somebody who is in a wheelchair, who is blocking my path because uh, the wheelchair is going slowly, I'll feel very compassionate and I would go and help that person. Similarly, same thing for blindness, deafness, and so on and so forth. Another is again, emotional regulation. So uh, my favorite example is actually road rage. In California, road rage is common. You know, I'm going on a highway, I'm getting late to my work, somebody cuts in front of me and I'm so mad, so upset. I start screaming, cursing, tailgating. That's not going to help. So how do I control that? The first thing is I try to reinterpret why that person cut in front of me. Not because he was a bad person, but maybe because there was a child on the back seat of the car and the child suddenly had a seizure. What would you do if you were there? You would cut in front of others because you need to rush to the emergency room, right? So if I think along that line, that immediately brings out my anger. So there are ways in which we can consciously make efforts to increase compassion, emotional regulation, self-reflection, and so on. Yeah, and you can simply say that person's probably having a bad day, even if they are deliberately cutting you off or being insensitive. They're, they're having a much worse life than you are. Yes. So there are ways of, of, of doing just simple reflection like that that can reinterpret what seems like a threatening or unpleasant event yes. to make it a, a way of evoking compassion. Exactly. Yeah. And then um, one of the the fascinating things to me about looking at MRIs or the MRI research into what accelerates neuroplasticity. So what I've been really curious about is we know that we trigger neuroplasticity by certain practices, but what triggers the most of the quickest? That's what I've been, been very curious about. And one of the things that Andrew Newberg has found in his research, he's been a guest on the show a few times, is that one of the factors that he's found triggers neuroplasticity the most, positive neuroplasticity, is intensity of emotion. He says that if you feel these emotions intensity, intensely, that that will actually trigger brain temporary state change the quickest and also spark trait change the quickest. Do you have any perspectives on that? Yeah, this is a neuroscience research that is growing very fast. 
and people are looking at it in various different ways. Um, so behavior, what we're talking about is sort of behavior affecting brain, but then also there is now study of direct ways of stimulating brain and see how that affects behavior. So there is something called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation or RTMS. So what you do is put these electrodes and you specifically stimulate the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And you have to do that actually for about 10 minutes every day for five days in a week for six weeks. But studies clearly show that if you do that, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex gets stimulated. And during that time, actually you can do much more than you would otherwise be able to. Again, this is emerging science and you know we are not there yet to practice it on a daily basis, but I think that's the most exciting part I find that just like these changes can affect behavior, what you're talking about is how behavior can affect brain. And I think it goes in both ways. Yes, right, yeah. So you want to do those behaviors you can, and we probably will have many more direct ways of stimulating the brain in the future, but for right now, we have those, those practical techniques we can use, like reframing you mentioned, that will do it behaviorally for us right now. That's exactly right. Yeah, we have to do with what we have today uh, and learn. Um, and again, the, the different people differ again. So some things would work in some people, another thing would work in another, another group of people. Yes, yeah, you have to just be self-reflective as well and notice the things that work effectively for you and then practice, practice those. Other, other ways of sparking positive neuroplasticity, beneficial neuroplasticity, like if you were, if you had a patient there and uh, say this was, wasn't a patient with any, any, any major uh, disorder or diagnosis, but it's just a normal, normal patient or what we think of as normal, whatever that is. And you, you were, you're advocating this person practice these wisdom skills. What would you tell that patient? I would say that if you do this right, there is a good chance that not only will you feel happier and your behavior will improve, but it is very likely to have some structural effect on your brain and body, which means that the stay, the change will stay longer. For example, there are a number of studies now that show that meditation and mindfulness have biological effect on the brain. They can increase the volume of the gray matter they can increase the white matter integrity. They can reduce the biomarkers of inflammation in the blood. So these are not just feel-good science type therapies. They're biological therapies. And so what we, so I used to think that the treatments are of two types, biological like drugs, and then there's behavioral. But over the years, I have become increasingly convinced that the behavioral therapies are as biological as drugs. <laughs> now, I, I, it probably is not the, the public position statement of the American Psychiatric Association. And I'm just wondering, <laughs> you know, I, I, I have many psychiatrist friends and like one in particular, a man called Ron Rudin in New York, he just really laments the, um, he said, you know, when, I was practicing, when I, as I was a practicing psychiatrist in the 1950s and 60s, it was, all, it was basically psychotherapy. And then it became more and more drug-based and now it's almost entirely drug-based. So I got out now I'm basically functioning as a, as a psychotherapist again. And, and where, what's the state of the, the profession in terms of those, those camps, the drug-based versus the behavioral and non-drug-based? I think, unfortunately, what happens is right now, medicine is mainly driven by the reimbursement policies. Unfortunately, so people spend time are doing things that will be reimbursed rather than not reimbursed. So if you do, if you see a patient in 15 minutes and prescribe a medication, I mean, assuming this is the right medication, et cetera, but if that is reimbursed and you can see four such patients in an hour. If you do psychotherapy for one hour, you will get much less money than you would by seeing four patients and giving them medication. And that's really the tragic part of today's medicine. And it is not physician's fault. I think it is our reimbursement system that is faulty in several ways. I mean, another way is we reward procedures. We don't reward prevention. And so if you go for your annual visit, sometimes uh, you have to pay for it. 
But if you get sick and you have to go to the emergency room, they will spend much more money on that. So, so there is something wrong with our uh, policies right now that we are in, we got to focus on prevention because what we are doing is really being penny wise and pound foolish. We treat instead of, for example, instead of encouraging healthy lifestyle, we pay for treatment when something goes wrong, person develops diabetes, obesity, et cetera. But if we could encourage people to go to the gym, pay for the gym, for example, that happens only in sort of for some people, older people, but this is something that should happen throughout at all ages. We should pay people for getting their assessments done regularly, for eating nutritious food. We should reward them for that. We don't do that. We punish them if they develop illnesses. And we, so I think, that, and so, so when I was the president of the American Psychiatric Association, I became very concerned about that. And so the question was, what was the theme of my presidency? And I realized that in psychiatry, we were not following the principles of positive psychology. And so I developed something called positive psychiatry. And I said that if you open the dictionary and you ask for definition of psychiatry, psychiatry is defined as a branch of medicine that focuses on study and treatment of mental illnesses. And I said that, look, we are not experts in mental illnesses only. I mean, obviously we have to treat mental illnesses, no question about that. We are experts in mental health. 20% people have mental illnesses. 100% people have mental health. So we should be doing something to promote mental health, which means promoting things like resilience, optimism, compassion, social engagement, wisdom. And again, this is not feel-good TV science. There is hardcore data today that show that the psychosocial determinants of health you mentioned that uh, uh, in your work also, uh, including on the negative side, loneliness and social isolation. On the positive side would be compassion, resilience, positive feeling. There is evidence that these things have more effect on health and longevity than the traditional risk factors like smoking, alcohol use, and sedentary behavior. And so, then it's all understood that, yeah, those have more of an effect than the traditional risk factors. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's such a division. There's such a, a, a branching out of people's fields of possibility if they're able to really implement those, those kinds of behavioral changes. And then they start to feel better. It's self-reinforcing. They do more of them and they have a whole different health than what they otherwise, otherwise would. I want to ask you one question. We, we have 12 minutes left, and I'm just I'm wishing we had about 12 hours left because this, this is so interesting. But, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm asking a question here, not a leading question, I don't know the answer. And I, I'm feeling a little bit um, emotional as I ask this question, Dr. Jess, because it bothers me. And so I, I teach a lot of classes and typically I'm on stage, there's maybe hundred people in the audience. I'm doing demonstrations of various heal energy healing techniques like EMDR and EFT and and, and mindfulness and so on. And, uh, and then people are coming up there and usually I do not work with traumatized people. I just have a, have a kind of, a, it just not an appropriate uh, setting to work with somebody with, with trauma. But occasionally I have, uh, after say at the end of a week long class, I'll have a, a, a psychotherapist there who says, I wanna work on my, my trauma. I know he or she has done a lot of earlier work and I will work with that person under those circumstances. So a few times I've worked with people, you know, for example, one woman who had been molested from the ages of two to the ages of 17, and um, she was just ready to, to work through it. And so on stage in front of, you know, a big audience, she sat there and we, it was a very long, tearful session. And she just stood up at the end of it and said, you know, nothing that man could do to me for those 15 years could destroy my happiness. I was happy underneath it all. I'm happy today. I was happy back then. And she had this whole flip in her, her viewing of it. She, she now saw her molestation as being evidence of her resilience. And that was the story she told at the end of the session. So I, I love that. But also I do have people sometimes in workshops tell me their stories. And this is the emotional part for me is 
I don't know if they can heal. They'll tell me a story of abuse or molestation or, or neglect. And so I, I would love to believe that everyone can heal. And there are optimists who tell you that everyone can heal. And then like some of those guys at the homeless encampment, you know, so the, the very delicate question is, the very emotional question is, are there people who are just too damaged to be able to heal? I think the answer is yes. I think there are people who it will be very difficult for them to heal. And I think what we have to do then is not expect full healing, but partial healing. So we do the best we can. You know, it is like a brain injury. If somebody has brain injury that totally destroys uh, one lobe, say, um, then that lobe will not come back. However, the rest of the brain can pick up parts of that function. And that's how the brain function tends to recover. That if I have a stroke, for example, uh, you know, in old age, and then I lose a part of my brain because that dies because of that stroke, that part will not come back to life. However, the other parts can begin to take over the function of that, and they will never do the same job as that part did. So it's 100% healing not possible. But even 75% healing is better than 0% or 50%. So that's my message that you're absolutely right. There are some people where complete healing is not possible. And then let us try to do the best we can. That is a very wise answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, yeah, so you, you simply encourage what healing can happen. And um, even if it's clear that full healing may not be possible. That doesn't mean that substantial healing might not be possible. I want to just in our last few minutes here cover one area which um, I know has been, been controversial in the APA, which is developmental trauma. And um, I had some friends like Bessel van der Kolk who were arguing in the last edition of the DSM that developmental trauma be set up as a separate diagnosis from PTSD. And uh, that, that effort was unsuccessful. And so it was not, not set up that way. And the idea is that that if people are damaged, especially at very young ages when the brain is developing, I mean, the limbic system is the fastest growing brain region, the emotional brain for the first couple of years of life, when they're being damaged at that fundamental neurological level, but that's a different category. It should be a different category from the person who had a car crash at the age of 25 that traumatized them. And so developmental trauma, what is, what is your take on that whole debate and um, that whole area of practice? So, and this is not an excuse, but I'm not an expert in that area. So I work uh, with older people. So I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. So I, so again, so probably the experts in that area will have better uh, opinions about that or more information, database opinions about that. But my sense is that the developmental trauma, it would depend on the degree of trauma and the person. Children tend to be remarkably resilient and they're much more resilient than older people. Their brains are, the bodies are, not surprising. And so sometimes what you don't expect may happen. The later it occurs, the harder it is because then the brain has matured and then it's hard to make changes. At the same time, I don't like to give up on that, that if the neuroplasticity, let's say, in a five-year-old, let's say if it is 100%, in an 80-year-old, it'll probably be 40%. So 40% is clearly less than 100%, but it's much better than 0%. And that 40% partly depends on genes, but partly depends on what you do. I mean, I know, um, Dawson, in your book, you talked about the gene, emotional interactions, and how the mutual relationship that goes in both ways. Uh, and so, so I think that, so the, from the positive side that people should always try doing something that they may not recover completely, but there could be improvement. So, because, yeah, and really, if we take the negative aspect, then actually people would feel much more depressed. And one of the things is encouraging agency in the sense that we have control over our lives. But within limits, I mean, honestly, my best um, quote for wisdom is serenity prayer. 
that give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. So there are some things we cannot change. And biology, ultimately, you know, everybody dies eventually. We can't change. However, there are lots of things we can do. And so, so people should focus on those things they can do and they do the best that they can achieve. So focus on the things you can do and do the best with what you have. That is a wonderful way to wrap up our time together and a wonderful reflection to end with. I'm just so grateful for the, the, the deep caring that you show in your work. And um, I, I feel you and your words are infused with love and compassion and you are such a beautiful example of what you're teaching. I'm deeply, deeply grateful both for you personally and for your work. Thank you, thank you very much. And you know, the feelings are mutual because I'm also very respectful of the work you have done and the philosophy that you promote through your radio shows, which is great. I mean, I really think people need to hear that. And again, coming from somebody accomplished like you, I think uh, people will realize that that is real science. <laughs> this is real science, folks. This can really help you be happier and healthier. And again, have an entirely different process as you age than you would if you were just going along that kind of unwise path that Dr. Jess was talking about. For more on his work, I'm going to spell this out for you. You want to go to Dilip? Just MD, that's D I L I P J S T E M D, Dilip J E S T E M D.com. And for more on his newest book, Wiser, go to the website Wiser the Book, Wiser the Book.com. And again, apply those things in your life. We can't necessarily heal 100%, but as Dr. Jess was saying, if you can do 40% or 70% or 75%. That's well worth improving your life by that increment. So thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again for the next show. It's just a joy to share this with you every week. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. It's been an absolute honor and delight to spend this time with you. And as you've been listening, you have been affirming your well-being. You've been taking the agency Dr. Jess referred to and saying, I'm going to direct my attention to a positive message, an uplifting message for this hour. I'm going to use my attention and focus it on something that really can affect my mood, my well-being, and my inner state. So you have taken that step by doing this, and I salute you for doing that. Do that every day. Know that you have the this absolute gift of attention, and you can choose to direct your attention every day to those messages that nurture you, that fill you with the wisdom that Dr. Jess advocates. So thank you again for being here, and we'll be back again next week, same time, same place. Thanks again.